0: Now, as I say every week, the theme of the Gospel of John, he gives it to us in John chapter 20, verse 31. You're you're going to have this memorized before you know it. But he says at the end of the book, the reason he has written these things is so, what he's written previous, uh, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, that you would have life in his name. That's what John is intending to do. He's moving every story, every event. He has this uh, thesis, if you will, this goal, that he is driving the reader, the hearer, towards belief, but belief that Jesus is indeed the sent one, the Messiah, and that by believing you would have life, that you would have transformation, your life would be changed because of this truth, and so in John chapter three, we come to a very pivotal chapter in the Gospel of John, one of more familiar to many of us, and one of the things that the, it helps us to answer. Everybody's on a, a quest of some sort to find what is the purpose and meaning of life, and what uh, even in a religious sense, if you are. Uh, interested in spiritual things? How can I be a good person? Maybe take it up a notch. How can I be a uh, person in right relationship uh, with my maker, with God? How, do, how does that work? Do I uh, start going to church? Do I start doing some good deeds? Do I start, uh, you know, working in a soup kitchen? Do I start, uh, you know, giving money to the poor? What is, what, what is involved in all that? And uh, sometimes our human tendency is to come up with elaborate schemes of how we are to be uh, have a sense of how we feel right about God, and instead of let's look at the Word of God and see what Scripture says. And in John chapter three, Jesus gives us some clear instruction and teaching in a particular encounter with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And if you have your Bibles open to John chapter three, we are I'm going to read chapter 3, and I'm going to read down through uh, verse 15 this morning. And I wanted to read it in its entirety uh, in in our study, because it it is a narrative, and and we'll kind of divvy it up a little bit, but John chapter 3, it should be on the screen, and you can follow along there, or in your own Bibles. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Bible says... Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. May have eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray, God, that it gives instruction to our heart. I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring alive into those who are here today that need this message, God, of how, Lord, that we can be in right relationship with you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle John opens with a radical contrast in people uh, from the end of chapter 2. You remember at the end of chapter 2, there were those, and it makes a comment at the last couple of verses of chapter 2, that there was a great following coming after Jesus, but he knew their heart. He knew that the only reason that they were following after him was because he did signs, He knew their heart. And that, even though we have chapter headings and verse numbers, those were put in much later. That isn't the way John wrote. And it really is a hinge that goes right into this story about Nicodemus and examining his heart. Now, it's interesting because Jesus' contrasts to the people, if he was going to show how to be made right with God, he took what most people would understand as the pinnacle of an example of somebody who was right with God. Nicodemus was a, a man of uh, great stature, as we'll see in a little bit. His name, Nicodemus, in the Greek, Nicholas, uh, means conqueror of the people. If you have Nike shoes, the word Nike is a derivative to mean conquer. That is uh, where the word in the Greek, Nicodemus, means a conqueror of the people, but what I love about this story is it takes this man Nicodemus, whose name is a conqueror of the people, and we're going to witness him being conquered by Christ. Great story this morning, and so I uh, aptly titled this, uh, because he came to Jesus at night, I called this Nick at Night. (laughs) Had to stay up late for that one. Uh, Nicodemus encounters with Jesus, and Jesus told him what it means and how to be right with God. And there's three important truths from this passage that I would direct your attention to. And there's a listener's guide that I've included in the bulletin. And I've believed that if you're like me, uh, the more you engage in listening, that's why we take the extra time to put these in here and put the scriptures on the screen is the whole point is to drive you to be engaged with scripture, to be engaged with the word of God, not to be a passive, lazy listener, but to be engaged. And so that's why we want to encourage you to do that. But notice three important truths from this passage in John chapter three. First of all, number one is we learn from Jesus is that being good is never good enough because it's not about religion. It's about rebirth. Being good is never good enough because it's not about religion, it's about rebirth. John chapter 3 verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Several things we note and learn about this particular man who's come to Jesus at night. The Bible says that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were uh, kind of in our terminology, were one of the denominations, if you were, were in Judaism in Jesus' day. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had uh, smaller groups like called the Zealots, you had another group called the Essenes, and even within those, there was like today. You can't just be a Baptist or a Presbyterian. There's like multiple Baptists, and you know, pre- so it's the same way in Judaism, uh, much of the same way. But the Pharisees, were the most distinct, they were the uh, fundamentalists, if you were, of Judaism, and they were recognized for their deep piety and godliness and their outward effort, and I believe sincerely uh, most of them that desired in their hearts to follow God as they understood it. uh, They were guardians of the law. Uh, The Pharisees arose during the time uh, in what we call the intertestamental period, but from the time... About the 300 years from the end of Malachi till we see uh, the emergence of the Gospels during that period that they, uh, they arose and they were to be the guardians and protectors of the law. There was only about 6,000 Pharisees roughly in Israel. Not just anybody could be a member of the Pharisees. It was kind of an elite uh, group that required a lot of sacrifice, a lot of dedication Uh, A giving of uh, tithes, it was very self-sacrificial to be a part of this group. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but but he even is more than a Pharisee. It says that he is a ruler of the Jews. That means he is a member of the Sanhedrin. That was kind of the supreme court, if you will, that governed the uh, religious civil affairs of Israel, uh, the Sanhedrin. So that was uh, a group of only 70 members uh, the Sanhedrin and so he was he was a judge if you will on this Sanhedrin this ruling council and then down in verse 10 we learn something else about Nicodemus is that Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Israel now all Pharisees were teachers but Jesus seems to even mark him out more that he was a teacher of teachers so this one who came to Jesus at night wasn't just anybody that fell off the wagon that wanted to follow Jesus. He was an elite part of Israel as a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and a teacher of the teachers. And so he came to Jesus, and in verse 2 it says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him very respectfully, as he said, Rabbi, Rabbi just means teacher, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with him. Why did he come at night? Well, there's a lot of speculation, but I don't think it's really complicated. Think of his status and who he was. And already Jesus was kind of stirring the pot a little bit. There was a little bit of controversy maybe starting to brew. And so uh, Nicodemus came to him at night perhaps so that maybe he wouldn't be seen or identified, and maybe he would uh, be given a little more time to be with Jesus, ask him some questions, but that's probably why he came at night. And he says, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Uh, As I said at the end of verse 23 and 24, uh, people who followed Jesus just because they saw him do the miracles, the signs, wasn't overly impressive to Jesus in and of itself. I'm not sure if I put it on the screen, but John 2, 23 and 24, I referred to it, but I think it might be on the screen. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, uh, many believed in his name when they what? Saw the signs that he was doing. But here's a qualifier, verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. Well, here you have Nicodemus, from all outward circumstances, a, a man of God, a man of stature, a man of, of high reputation, and he's acknowledging that I recognize that you had to come from God because nobody could be, do these signs, but that wasn't necessarily what Uh, that was not going to impress Jesus because he knew what was in the heart of man and he certainly knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus. Isn't it interesting, as you read the uh, accounts of Jesus, even I think about the rich young ruler, how Jesus always addresses and answers an individual or situation. Why? Because he knows what's beyond the surface. He knows what's going on inside. There may be a great facade. And that's where sometimes we need to be guided by the Holy Spirit When we're witnessing to people, sometimes people put up a lot of facades. They want to ask a lot of deep theological questions that they're really not interested in. And even if you gave them an answer, it wouldn't satisfy them. But it's just kind of a a smoke screen because they don't want you to get to any of the issues of the heart. Jesus always went for the heart. Amen? And so Nicodemus called Jesus rabbi. And what's interesting, and it may be a little clue of what it tells us about Nicodemus... Is that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, what is he doing by calling Jesus a rabbi? Nicodemus is putting himself in the place of a student, of a pupil, a teachable spirit. Uh, Something that I believe God, the humility of a teachable spirit, he recognizes that he's more than just a teacher. And that brings us to the answer that Jesus gives to this cultured, educated, well-respected Uh, religious leader, and it's kind of a a startling thing, maybe abrupt thing, because Jesus is not seemingly uh, one who is engaged in small talk. He gets right to the issue. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly. uh, You may have the King James says, verily, verily. It means in the Greek, it's amen, amen. It just means uh, it's underscoring like this is true truth. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? It's like anytime Jesus begins a statement by saying truly, truly, or verily, verily, or in the Greek, amen, amen, it's kind of an emphasis, and he says it at least, I think, a few times here in this passage. It's an underscore that this is really, really, really important, okay? It's like underline it, bold type, put lights around it, pay attention, because Of what I'm about to say. Truly, truly I say to you. That unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now in context. In context Jesus is referring. uh, I believe to what we would call the millennial kingdom. At the end of the age. That was a kingdom anticipated by Uh, the Pharisees and other Jews. The Pharisees certainly recognized um, they were supernaturalists. They believed in a resurrection from the dead. Uh, they, They believed that a Messiah would return and establish a messianic kingdom. Unfortunately, their concept of Messiah through the years had become kind of muddied because they envisioned a Messiah that would come in the form of a military conqueror and not that of the suffering servant that Isaiah tells us. That's why Peter had such a strong reaction when Jesus talked about uh, going to the cross. Remember, Peter said, not if I have anything to do with it, you're not doing that. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, right? So, uh, so the, uh, 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 he says you cannot see the kingdom of God. And if there was anybody, I mean, one of the purposes, especially the Pharisees, These fundamentalists of the law, uh, law keepers, these guardians of the law, these keepers of the law of Moses. If there was anything that they aspired to and believed fervently that they would be qualified to, to have the credentials. Is that they would see and be a part and enter the kingdom of God. That was the ultimate purpose to be ruling and reigning in the Messiah, they met, in their estimation and mind, they met the qualifications as one who would be a part and enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, something that throws that on its heels, that unless you're born again, unless you're born again, you cannot see, you have no hope for entering the kingdom of God. The entrance into the kingdom of God is not through your religious heritage, but through regeneration. The word born again means uh, to be born from above. Literally, it means unless you are born from above. And the word there uh, that I would circle in my Bible where it says, unless, unless that means it's a necessary condition, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not for those that are just really, really Jesus freaks. He's saying that unless, unless conditionally you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And despite all his learning and esteem and and attainment, Nicodemus was baffled by this thought. See, instead of trying to reform himself, he needed to be spiritually reborn. And that's what Jesus is driving at. And in one sentence, Jesus kind of sweeps away everything this, uh, this uh, religious man stood for. Uh, one writer I thought worth quoting. I try not to do a lot of quotes, and it won't be on the screen, but it's, it's short. Uh, New Testament scholar by the name of Kenneth Wiest makes an interesting comment on this passage He says, the teaching here of what Jesus says in John 3.3, the teaching here is that man, humankind, is in a totally sinful condition and cannot be improved. Reformation will not change him or her into a fit subject for the kingdom of God. The sin nature is incurably wicked and cannot, by any process of religion, be changed in order to produce an acceptable life with God. What the person needs, and Jesus says, is a new nature. He needs a spiritual nature which will produce a life pleasing to God and which will be a life fit for the kingdom of God. The new birth, be born again, is a permanent thing. It produces a permanent change in the life of the individual and makes him or her A fit subject for the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Verse 4. Nicodemus is stumped by this. And obviously he's thinking very much in the natural. Nicodemus said, how? How's that work? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I can almost see kind of a little chuckle coming from him and maybe even Jesus at the absurdity of such a thought. But remember, Jesus is talking about spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 reminds us that the natural man cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. So that's why in order to understand spiritual truth, you must be born again. That's why some of you, that you're still grasping and don't understand a lot of things about the Bible and God, maybe one of the reasons is because you're not born again. You don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you to show you spiritual truths. That comes about when a person is regenerated, when they're born again, when they're reborn by the Holy Spirit. And so Nicodemus asked the question, what kind of how, do, how does that work? And Jesus is speaking about a spiritual birth. Unless you, uh, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God, unless you have this, Spiritual birth. Being good enough, being good, being good is never good enough because it's not about religion, it's about rebirth. But there's a second truth that Jesus provides us as well as Nicodemus. Secondly, being good is never good enough because it's not about systems, it's about the spirit. It's not about systems. It's about the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Jesus answered, here's another, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Water here, uh, without getting a lot of reasons, is referring to... That there must be a purification, there must be a cleansing. Nicodemus would have understood what Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, and it's in your hand out there, uh, at least part of it where in Ezekiel it speaks about the promise of the work of God, that He will sprinkle, I will sprinkle clean water in you and you will be clean, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. You see, Jesus is saying is not saying that you just have to try harder. You just got to work harder. You got to work hard at being religious. You got to keep those good deeds outweighing uh, the bad deeds. No, it's not about systems. It's not, not systems, but it's about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit, capital S Spirit, capital Holy Spirit is the one who can bring about permanent change. This work of being reborn is a work of God's spirit that Jesus tells us. To make sure that Nicodemus does not misunderstand this truth, he says something and adds something in verse 7. He just underscores it. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's not just talking about a general sense, but he puts his finger right on Nicodemus's heart and says, you, Nick, you must be born again. Now, to a religious, educated, wealthy, prestigious guy coming to some unknown teacher out in the out, in the, out parts of town, uh, he's coming, that would have been quite uh, uh, offensive to say that. But we don't see Nicodemus got uh, offended by that when Jesus says, you must be born again. You know, it's important to remind ourselves that Jesus was speaking to these words to somebody that, by all human standards, had attained the ultimate in their spiritual life. And that was Nicodemus. And I think that's why, again, it's just such a contrast because he wasn't just pulling. You know, he didn't just get somebody like the thief on the cross who was already sentenced to death because he was a criminal and say, you must be born again. Everybody like, yeah, that guy really needs to be born again. No, he picks what the culture, the society, Judaism, he picks, picks the top religious dog, if you will, and says this. Remember when Jesus said uh, that you must be perfect and your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? That's impossible to exceed the righteousness unless you're what? Unless you are born again. Because in their mind, remember the disciples even when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and they thought, you know, wow, finally we get, some, you know, we get somebody with some money in this, in this group or whatever. Because wealth, wealth was a symbol of God's favor as they saw it. And so Jesus is not impressed. With that man's money or his wealth, what does he do? Just like Nicodemus, he goes for the heart of the issue and says, go and sell all that you have. That, some people take that and mean that all Christians have got to be poor. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. He didn't require him to go sell all he had. But in this man's case, his money, his wealth became an obstacle, became an idol. In Nicodemus's life, his religion... And what he attained had become an obstacle. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Even you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I ask you, have you been born again? I'm not asking about church membership. Whether you were baptized as a a baby and entered into a confirmation of a particular church or group. Not interested in your giving record, your personal morality. Have you experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit by being born from above. Has the work of God's regeneration, we call it. Regeneration. What does it mean? When you regenerate something, it means that one time it was generating. It stopped. It needs to be regenerated. Our lives spiritually speaking are dead before the lord we need the regeneration the reempowerment that only the holy spirit can provide your attendance your religiosity all your stuff that you may feel accumulates god's favor in your life the bible calls that like filthy rags before god you must be born again nicodemus excelled in religion but he lacked a relationship. And hear this, and I think we see this clear in Nicodemus' life and what Jesus is saying, that honor and respect for Jesus is not enough. You hear what I'm saying? Let me say that again. Honor and respect for Jesus is not enough to enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus certainly honored him and respected him, didn't he? Called him rabbi. No man can be Sent from God unless he, you know, nobody could do the miracles that you do unless they're sent from God. But honor and respect, if that was all that was required, Nicodemus had it. But that's not enough. It's not about systems. It's about the Spirit. You see, this is why we need God's grace. The grace of God. We sing amazing grace. But do we know amazing grace? Do we understand amazing grace? Some of you sing Amazing Grace, but grace is no longer amazing anymore. Grace is God giving to me something that I cannot obtain on my own. Grace is being accepted by God even though I do not deserve it, even though I'm not worthy of it. The Bible says that I receive this grace gift when I believe. God provides it, but it's only... It's only uh, accounted to me when I receive this grace gift, when I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my only hope for forgiveness. Paul would write in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that anyone that no one should boast. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going. Look at verse eight. and this is exactly what Jesus says. "The wind, He likens the Holy Spirit to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes." Gives an example, a metaphor, a word picture. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the recreative uh, power of God. Remember in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, how the earth was without form or was, was void, without form, or, or there was nothing created, and it says how the Spirit... The spirit, the Hebrew word is ruach. The spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was is the creative power and presence of God, God of very God. Uh, the Greek word is pneuma, uh, breath, wind. The same, the same word. The work of the Holy Spirit is like it's not the Holy Spirit is not the wind, just like. In Acts 2, it said the Holy Spirit is descended like, or no, when Jesus was baptized, rather, how it says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. It's not saying the Holy Spirit's a bird. Okay? So if you feel the wind, it's not saying, oh, that's the Holy It's just saying he's like. And he gives a metaphor, a word picture to help us and help Nicodemus understand. Breath. Remember Jesus later in, in John 20, Jesus breathed upon his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Breath, wind, uh, all those things are intercorrelated in speaking about of how the Holy Spirit works. Uh, remember, all scripture is given by God. All scripture is inspired. The word inspire, uh, most of the newer versions like the NIV or the ESV translate inspire to what it literally means. It means God breathed. God breathed upon the words, the word of God upon the writers. The breath of God, the breath has the power, the creative power of God. And so Jesus connects the wind, the breath, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says uh, the work of the Holy Spirit is similar in several ways. And this is in your listener guide. The Spirit is real, but you can't see him. You see, Nicodemus's religion was about visible things, external things. Those born of the Spirit uh, operate in the invisible realm. They're not seen. They're spiritually understood. Secondly, the effects of the Spirit are visible, but His ways are unexplainable. Just like we don't know where the wind comes from and when it will come again, so too the Spirit blows as He wishes. The sovereign Spirit moves as He wishes. We know He is working. How? Because we see the effects of the Spirit. may not see it, but we see the effects. He's powerful, thirdly, and you can't control Him. You see, Nicodemus could control his religious life, but you can't control the wind. And those of us living in Florida and dealing with the great winds of hurricanes know that all too well. The Spirit is powerful. It can't be contained. The spiritual life... Is not about trying to gain more control, but about giving up control to God, liking it the wind to the work of the Spirit. Another way that he compares or the Spirit is like the wind is the Spirit uh, is invigorating. You can't uh, copy Him. There's nothing like a breeze that blows through the mustiness of a room. You ever have a room that, you know, just, boy, it's musty in here, and you open up the windows and The doors and just the the breeze blows in. so the breath of fresh life that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives or even into our church. And the Holy Spirit is irresistible. You can't stop him. So the first truth that Nicodemus learned from Jesus is that being good is never good enough because it's not about religion. It's about rebirth. Jesus said, secondly, is that being good is not good enough because it's not about systems, it's about the Spirit. But notice, thirdly, being good is never good enough because it's not about balancing my good works. It's about believing in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. It's not about, you know, me just kind of navigating life, trying to balance my good works, hopefully... You know, the, when I go up there and you hear people talk like this, maybe you talk like this, you know, them. well, when I go up there and the man upstairs puts everything on the balancing, on the balancer, you know, and I hope that my good outweighed my bad. Listen, if that's what you're holding on to, you're in trouble, according to what the scripture says. It's not about balancing good works, but it's about believing. Isn't that what John's goal is to his hearers? that you would believe, some of us think that, you know, if I could just read and discover this secret of life, if I can just have this right job, if I can just uh, find where I can just kind of enter into this and be good enough and and discover what that is, kind of like a puzzle and that I'm trying to learn the the purpose and meaning of life. Listen, it's not trying to discover the next secret or the next uh, uh, answer to a puzzle of the riddles of life. But it's meeting the person of Jesus Christ that God says is necessary. You know the Avis, Avis rent a car. I don't know if they still have this on their commercials, but one of their their slogans back uh, used to be, maybe it still is, I don't know. But Avis's advice is we try harder. And that's the way some people approach their Christian life. We try harder. Just keep going. You know, well, preacher, i got to get back in church. No, you need to get church in you. It isn't just about what you do. You see, it isn't that good works lead to transformation, but a transform, transformed life will produce good works. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reminds us of. The real issue is not trying harder. The real issue is trusting in the one who has paid the price for us. Jesus gave the picture, the metaphor of the wind as a a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. But in verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives another picture to help Nicodemus understand what he's saying. Now, you know, a good master teacher, and Jesus was the master teacher, right? He was the best teacher. A good teacher always tries to take their pupils, their students from something they know to lead them to something they don't know, right? Something familiar to the unfamiliar. So Jesus gives an example that Nicodemus will clearly understand, that every Jew would understand. It's from the, an event uh, in the life of Moses. And in John three fourteen through 15, Jesus says, and he's quoting from Numbers 21 or making reference to Numbers 21. He says in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever, there's that word again, I would circle every time you see, believe, or believe, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now when you read that, don't just stop there and say, oh, okay, I don't really know what he's talking about. Look in your little, little numbers, if you have a reference Bible or something, and say, oh, he's referencing to something in the Old Testament. Maybe I can learn something. Let me go back and see what he's talking about there and how he's making a connection between that event and Numbers 21 to what Jesus is saying now. Do you remember do you Remember when Jesus was resurrected and he came alongside those two disciples And he began conversing with them. And the scripture says at the end of Luke, I believe in chapter 24, how he says that as he began to show them in the law of Moses and the prophets, all those things concerning himself, how it opened their eyes. And they believe, well, here is a connection to an Old Testament event. And Jesus connects the dots and says that what Moses did in symbolic form really represented a future truth. That was fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, you with me? Too much turkey? Come on, you with me? All right, good. All right. Here's what's going on. All right. Here's what's happening in Numbers 21. I'm not going to read the passage, but I'm just going to paraphrase it, and hopefully you'll read it uh, later. But let me just say this: that remember what Nicodemus was. He was a Pharisee. They were the guardians of the law. Who were that? Who was the hero? Of the Pharisees. The lawgiver, Moses, what does he do? He takes his hero and makes a connection. He takes something familiar to Nick and connects it to something related to the work of Jesus. Now, in Numbers 21, uh, you can read it later. Let me paraphrase it and tell you what's going on. In Numbers 21, verses 8 through 9, but in Numbers 21, the Israelites were. This is part of their 40 years when they were wandering in the wilderness before they would come into the land of Canaan, before the promised land. This was that wilderness time, 40 years. The Israelites were in the desert and they were dying in this event in Numbers 21 because they were being bitten by poisonous snakes. Now, these poisonous snakes were sent as a judgment by God to punish them because of their complaining and rebellious attitudes. It was sent as a judgment against these Israelites in the wilderness. And after scores of people died, they finally pled with Moses to intercede and pray to God that he would take the snakes away. And Moses prayed, and Moses interceded, and God told him to do something interesting. Listen to this. This is a key connection. God told him to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and lift it high over the people's heads. And the Lord said that all the people, in order to receive healing from the venomous, poisonous bites, or be protected and to be healed, all they had to do was to look at this bronze snake on this pole, and if they would look, they would live. You know, it's interesting, if you know one of the symbols of medicine. In fact, the logo of the American Medical Association is a pole with a snake wrapped around it. That you never thought of that before. This is where it comes from. They didn't have to do anything except what? Look. They didn't have to reform their life. They didn't have to go back and clean up and get rid of those bad DVDs they had in their tent. They didn't have to get caught up on their tithing. What did they do? He says, if you look, you will live. Moses lifted up an unusual symbol. But really, there's a connection even further in the New Testament. That 2 Corinthians 5.21. That reads that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that everyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. Jesus became a curse. He became sin for our healing. You see, all of us have been bitten, if you will, by the ravages and the poison of, of the snake. Okay? The sin. Healing comes as, and that lifting up was a picture looking ahead to the cross. John uses it several times in the Gospel that as Jesus is lifted up, if I be lifted up before all, I will draw all people, all men to myself. The Son of Man be lifted. The key to the healing, he takes something familiar and said this, this is, the, this is like what I'm talking about, Nick. Look to Jesus. Look to the Son of Man. Look and live. You must be born again. It's as simple And yet as profound as that. You see, it wasn't sufficient for the Israelites to know that there was a snake on a pole. Just knowing about it, what was the requirement? Well, if you read what it says there in Numbers 21, verse 9, whoever looks to God's provision will live. Whoever is born again, whoever looks to Jesus, who receives the gift of God, will live. It isn't just enough to know it, to have your catechism memorized, to know about the truth. If you've not appropriated the truth, if you have not looked to the one who's been lifted up, you can't live. In God's kingdom. Now. This is what's cool. I didn't read it at the beginning. But with all that we've read. Let's naturally go into. John 3.16. Look at this. For God so loved the world. Now he's given some application here. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. Maybe we could say it this way. That. God so loved the world that he put Jesus who knew no sin to be sin up on the pole. That whoever believes, whoever looks to him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, whoever does not look, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, we don't really have 100% proof of what happened to Nicodemus. I know the chosen show, you know, Spends a lot of liberties, and it's good. I don't have any problem with that. But don't confuse what the movie does, you know, with we don't. But we do have some indicators that I believe Nicodemus became born again. There's some indicators of that. Uh, we know that later on in John chapter seven that Nicodemus stood before his peers, which was a big deal among the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and he defended Jesus. Publicly in John 7, 51. And then you know that after Jesus died, Nicodemus, along with another wealthy individual, prominent Jew by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, they helped, they asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. They must have been people of prominence and respect. Do you think Pilate would have just handed over the body of Jesus to any guy, anybody? But they had some. Let's just say they had some connection. They had some connection. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea helped bury the body of Jesus. And then in John 19.39, the last reference we have to Nicodemus, the Bible says that he brought 75 pounds of spices that were to anoint the body of Jesus. So I think it's safe to Say that Nicodemus was somebody that, and hear me on this, he identified with Jesus. He may have come at night, but it led him to come out during the day and to be identified with Jesus. He may have come at night because he was more concerned about his reputation, but that changed, didn't it? He identified with Jesus. I believe Nicodemus looked to the one that was lifted up to God's provision. The only way that we would ever be healed. And Nicodemus lived. I think there's also just a little side note here about Nicodemus. It's worth noting. Sometimes maybe we grew up or were presented where coming to faith in Christ was kind of an instantaneous event. You know, you you came to faith in Christ and just everything changed in an instant. And that certainly is a testimony for many people. But also we need to be reminded that it's important to understand that sometimes coming to faith in Christ, and maybe this is some of you today, is not an event as much as it's a process. And you see that, I think, in Nicodemus' life. He heard about the new birth. We see later indicators. He took steps towards identifying with Jesus. And finally, he identified publicly for everybody to know that he was identified and a follower of Jesus. This man of great wealth and fame. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 17, if you have faith as small as a grain of what? A mustard seed. You can do great things. I like old writers. And there's something some old writer right back in the 1800s wrote. He said, though Nicodemus came so no one would see him, yet he came. Though he was ignorant, yet he asked. Though he was a ruler, yet he renounced his knowledge and inquired with the simplicity of a child talking about feeble faith he says if we had rescued some poor creature from the ocean waves and not a breath was stirring and apparently they were dead we would we should use every means and go on in hope to try to save them and at last we hear a feeble sigh and the conclusion we draw is that he lives his life is as real as if he walked he's living And just like Nicodemus, even though there's just a little breath, the work of transformation, of being born again, is just as real in his life as if he had lived and been walking with Christ for a hundred years. You see, the Holy Spirit who works in our lives is the only one that can bring about the change. And so I would encourage you to be reminded this morning... The three things that we talked about. Being good is never good enough because it's not about religion. It's about a rebirth that requires, is, that's is what Jesus requires. Being good, enough, being good is never good enough because it's not about systems. It's not about your religious system, but it's about the spirit. And last, being good is never good enough because it's not about balancing our good works, but in believing in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. If you've never, never done that, then and you could say, I've never been born again. I've got a lot of religious knowledge, and maybe the reason some things don't make sense to you is because you need the Spirit of God to rebirth you, to make you born from above, to regenerate the heart, to make it alive before God. And you know what you'll find? You'll find yourself, like a lot of us, That once we became born-again believers, it didn't happen overnight, but all of a sudden we find the Word of God, because it has what? The wind, the breath of God. That's what inspire means. That all of a sudden we find the things that were hard to understand and grasp, we find the Holy Spirit showing us and leading us and teaching us and growing in our relationship with the Lord. But it begins not by trying to accumulate more knowledge, but it comes by being born-again. Let's bow our heads and pray.